I've had a discontented soul for most of my life. Jason Lehman penned a poem that expresses it well. It goes like this. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was autumn I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was autumn, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was youth I wanted and the free spirit. Then I retired, and it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life is nearing the end now, and I never got what I wanted. Jason points out where my discontented soul will lead if I don't do something about it. The title of this poem is Present Tense. It illustrates that we are never content with what we have in the present. We think something in the future supplies the key to unlock the mystery of contentment. My life at times could be compared to a bee in a summer garden, bouncing from one flower to the next, looking for joy and contentment. It often manifests itself in my life through a preoccupation with what I don't have, and then a breathless chase after it. Tom Brady, one of the great QBs in NFL history, when asked which Super Bowl ring was his favorite, he responded, the next one. Some might interpret his words as being driven, and I'm sure that's part of it, but there is more. He is restlessly searching. This is the shared narrative of human nature. Flowers and Super Bowl rings fail to meet our expectations. And this is why some of you bounce from job to job, state to state, clothing store to clothing store, iPhone to iPhone, vacation spot to vacation spot. Dennis Johnson wrote, tongue-in-cheek, that the economic health of our country depends on the cultivation of discontentment. Well, the problem didn't start with us or our culture. It actually began at the beginning of human history. Adam and Eve lived in an amazing paradise, filled with flowers, a world of innocence, beauty, and harmony. They had everything they needed until Satan came along and began the cultivation of discontentment. It's the very first temptation in human history. Are you sure that's all you need for contentment? Did you realize that one of the ways that Satan works in your life is to cultivate discontentment? Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, said, Satan loves to fish in the troubled waters of a discontented soul. If at any point this morning you say, I am deeply discontent, that's actually a very good thing. For you have acknowledged that it is a poison to your soul, and then and only then are you on the road to gospel 
contentment. Four movements in the text and applications weave throughout. The first movement. Contentment begins with rejoicing in God's good gifts, even if they are seemingly small. Notice verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. It's been 10 years since Paul planted the church at Philippi and then left to plant more churches. The Philippian church has been unable to send support to Paul. They are broke, dead broke. They couldn't even afford to pay attention. Paul simply says, pity laughs. I appreciate it. I take them, I receive them, and I treasure them. Paul simply says that they lacked opportunity. But they never lacked concern. After all, it took a lot of blood, sweat, and tears just to get money to Paul. It's not like he was just down the street. Paul never let grass grow under his feet. He was always on the move. He didn't have modern technological advances like a bank account and online recurring giving where the church could just drop money in his account. The church had to take up the offering, then put it in a bag, then give it to one of the members, and then he would travel 800 miles to Rome. By the time we read verse 10, Paul has received their gift from the hands of that church member. Paul receives this gift while being under Roman house arrest system. Don't think ankle bracelets, think soldier bracelets. House arrest prisoners depended on outside support for everything. Food, rent, clothing, books to read, Hulu subscriptions, medicine. That's better, that's better. He says, now at length you have revived your concern for me. Now that's a beautiful word, the word revived. It's a, it's a horticultural term that means to bloom again. Your love has flowered again. Your love has bloomed again. Paul is in rented quarters in a little dirty shack. And it has turned into a garden in full bloom. Adam and Eve lived in a garden. And it wasn't enough. Paul is living in change, and it has become to him a garden. Paul is deprived of every comfort. He is cast as a lonely man on the shores of the great and strange metropolis of Rome. With every movement of his hand, there is clanking of his fetters, and he holds their gift, their blooming flower, and he rejoices. No need to bounce to anything else for contentment. He is content with, with the basket. Basket with possibly a book in it. Some dove soap. $50 to pay rent this month. A shirt from Lydia's clothing shop. And a pillow. He's not bitter. He's not saying, I can't believe it took you this long to help me. He's not rifling through the basket like, is this it? What, no electric toothbrush? Are you serious? No, he's rejoicing in the gift and the timing. And he's so happy. He's doing the happy dance. The Greek word translated content in the next verse has shades of satisfaction. Shades of sufficient. Not needing more. Shades of 
enough. In other words, to be content is to be fully satisfied with what's in your care basket. To say, this is enough. We are called to contentment. We are called to be satisfied. We are called to say, I have enough. Adam and Eve, these flowers aren't enough. Paul... These flowers are more than enough. How can you follow Paul's lead and win the war over discontentment in financially tight times? Well, you focus on what you have, not on what you lack. Paul lacked running water. Paul lacked freedom to go to the bathroom when he chose. Paul lacked clean clothes. Paul lacked the assurance that he wouldn't be killed after the trial. Yet he doesn't mention any of that. He rejoices in the care basket. Are you showing signs of discontentment? Never satisfied with anything or anyone. Hard to please. Critical. You're frequently sad and disappointed. The person with a discontented heart is usually convinced that everything he does for God is more than plenty and everything God does for him is too little and usually too late. One of my friends, Charlie, Charlie Spurgeon, he taught, when you say, if I had a little more, I would be very satisfied, you make a mistake. If you are not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. More stuff won't bring deeper satisfaction. It is a gospel discipline to look at your house, your car, in your closet, at your spouse, towards your job, and rejoice over that blooming flower. Contentment is simply acknowledging that God has given me enough. It is understanding that all of which I have is a glorious and gracious gift from the sovereign hands of God. It is accepting what the Lord has entrusted to my care with the attitude of gratitude. It came through the hands of the Philippians, but it came from the hands of God. Why dance over a little rent money? Why dance over a little flower? Anything less than hell is dancing time for Christians. Second movement. Contentment is not a personality trait. It's a learned discipline. Verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Have you ever met someone and wish you were wired like them? They're, just, they're always so happy. When God gave out gifts to people, he gave them the gift of contentment. They are naturally content. Well, according to verse 11, that person doesn't exist. <laughs> Paul was not wired that way, and you're not wired that way. 
Paul had to learn contentment. This verse is an inside scoop into Paul's learning curve. The word translated learned is also translated discipled in other places in your Bible. In other words, Paul is saying, through my many years of discipleship, I had to learn to be content with what God had given me, where God had placed me, and with those to whom God surrounded me. It didn't come quick. It didn't come easy. Would you underline the word content? Content. The Greek word means an internal attitude of having enough. An internal attitude of having enough. Contentment is not a personality trait. It is a disciplined mind. And sadly, some Christians will live and die. Live and die without ever learning contentment. Just because you underline the word in your Bible doesn't mean you're living it. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, well-known Baptist in the 1800s, he said, We need not teach men to complain. They complain fast enough without any education. But the precious things of the earth must be cultivated. Do not indulge the notion that you can be contented without learning or learn without discipline. It is not a power that may be exercised naturally, but a science to be acquired gradually. And we know this from experience. He, he goes on, he continues, Brother, hush that murmur, natural though it be, and continue a diligent pupil in the college of content. Stay in school. Practice the assignments of gratitude. Do the homework of discipline. Since the first day of becoming a Christian, God enrolled me into the school of contentment. One Puritan wrote 300 years ago, Discontent dislocates the soul. Discontent dislocates the soul. It dries the brain and it corrodes the comfort of life and it wastes the spirit away. Now, because contentment is a universal human pursuit, and it seems to always be eluding us, I brought you two helpful resources, two books written during the, the Puritan period. And uh, you've got lots of time to read this week. All right, I, I know you do. This will change your life. Thomas Watson, whom I quoted earlier, I, I quote out of this book, Thomas Watson wrote, The Art of Divine Contentment. The Art of Divine Contentment. And the most classic one is by Jeremiah Burroughs. He wrote a book entitled, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Now, let me just give you a little summary of it. Christ-centered contentment is not pre-installed in our hearts, like a software program preloaded onto your computer. You have to add it to the programming. Contentment is not a personality trait. It's a lesson to be learned. It's an assignment. It's something you fight for. Contentment is something that we as Christians must regularly work to cultivate. And by not working on your contentment, you are working on your discontentment. This takes practice. Contentment grows over time. And by the way, the desire you have for contentment is not a sinful desire. It's a holy desire. It only becomes sinful when you look for something besides God to bring you contentment. Discontented people may shop a lot 
to satisfy that longing. Discontented people may travel a lot to satisfy that longing. Whether we are looking for contentment at Target or Thailand, your soul's GPS is broken. You are seeking satisfaction in the creation instead of the creator. Your heart was made for contentment. And until you come to the place in your life where you understand that God is sovereign and he's ordering everything for his own holy purposes, until you understand that, you will always be discontent. Your soul must embrace God's providence. I was listening to John MacArthur this week. And J-Mac said, Every time I see a discontent person, my first reaction is to give them a lesson on the sovereignty of God. I like that. Not to try to patch up their discontent with some kind of counsel, but to talk about the God in whom they evidently do not trust or do not know. Paul is not resting his head on the feathered pillow from the Philippians. He is resting his head on the feathered pillow of God's sovereignty. A.W. Pink. That's how you pronounce his name if you're from the north. If you're from the south, it's A.W. Pink. I live in Kentucky, so A.W. Pink said, Contentment is the product of a heart resting in God. It is the soul's enjoyment of that peace that passes all understanding. It is the outcome of my will being brought into subjection to the divine will. It is the blessed assurance that God does all things well and is, even now, making all things work together for my ultimate good. Movement number three. Contentment is not a result of a pleasant life, but the result of a perfect Savior. Paul expanded on the dynamics of contentment with beautifully balanced and rhythmic phrases in verse 12. There's such beauty here. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Some of you are waiting for all the pieces of the puzzle of your life to fall perfectly into place and you think that will result in contentment. I mean, you truly believe that it will come after you pay the debt off the vehicle or buy the lake house or get married or get a new job or reconcile the conflict. But the problem arises when you complete this magical accomplishment and then you find that the finish line has moved. Contentment isn't created by a salary package or a title or a good health report, or popularity. Contentment doesn't depend on a retirement plan, or on having smart kids, or a big garage, or a stocked tool shed. Like like tennis players hit a ball from one side of the court to the other, Paul here hits contentment from one extreme in life to another. Brought low to abounding. Hungry to full, in need to having an abundance. Contentment is found in the extremes of life. Not in one extreme, but in every extreme. Do you believe contentment is only found in these extremes? 
Paul said in every circumstance. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. Paul knew what it was, knew what it meant to be brought low. This guy didn't live out a fantasy. He lived out a nightmare. He told the church at Corinth that there were times when he was hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and homeless. He told them that he went through afflictions, hardships, difficulties, beatings, imprisonments, riots, sleepless nights, shipwrecked three times. Paul's contentment was neither inherited nor the result of nice circumstances. People seek contentment and typically assume that contentment is, means the absence of all problems. That's not the case. Some of you are suffering. John Piper says, This is God's universal purpose for all Christian suffering. More contentment in God and less satisfaction in the world. I'm just going to shoot straight with you. I am embarrassed. I am embarrassed by how little it takes to unsettle my contentment. A, a van that needs repairs. A computer that boots up slowly. A tough steak. A missed deadline. Paul is telling you, I've been brought low. Now that means to live in humble means. We, we could say, Paul knows what it means to financially tighten the belt. Paul knew what it was like to live with an empty cup. And some of you, you're brought low today. Life has knocked you down into humble means. Your spouse left you and is not coming back. You lost your job a month ago, but you still get up and dress like you're going to work because you're too ashamed to tell your wife. Your kids are causing you heartache like you've never experienced before. You thought surely when they were adults that something would change. Nothing's changed. You're forced to work at a job that deep down you feel is beneath you. Your life is filled with pain because of a disease. Brought low is when you face failure. It may not even be actual failure, but failure in your mind, in your opinion. You get overlooked for the promotion. You're still single. You knock on the door of your dreams and it just doesn't open. Your knuckles are bloody and you're saying, why is this door shut? I'm qualified, God, what's wrong? And you're wondering if it's still possible for you to be content. Yes, yes, it's possible. God's not asking you to always like your circumstances. Contentment does not come because of the circumstances, but in the circumstances. Stephen Davey says it best. Contentment does not come because you have conquered your circumstances, but because you have learned to live with them. One of Jonathan Edwards' biographers said of him, and I, and I love this, it may not fit, but I'm throwing it in anyway because I just love it. One of Jonathan Edwards' biographers said of him, his contentment was out of reach of his enemies. Paul continues in verse 12, and I know how to abound. I know how to live in poverty, and I also know how to live in prosperity. Paul says, I know how to live on almost nothing and with almost everything. 
Not everyone has lived on both sides of the street, having steak every night on the plate. But there also being a time when there were Cheetos every night on the plate. Paul knew abundance. He knew what it was, what it was like to be hosted by the wealthy Lydia in Philippi. Surely he had wonderful dinners with some wealthy Christian friends in Ephesus and Corinth. But he was no more content during such experiences. When you abound, that is when you land the contract. When you get the raise. When you're engaged. When you're pregnant after you've been praying for years. Paul learned to live with an overflowing cup have you? Have you ever noticed that there are more discontented people living in mansions than there are living in modest homes? Why do you think this is the case? Why are wealthy people more antidepressants than poor people? You say, well, Kyle, that's easy because they can afford it. Well, maybe. Maybe. But possibly the answer runs deeper than affording pills. Many of you sitting in this auditorium are prime examples of someone abounding. Compared to the rest of the world, especially third world countries, you are wealthy. People all around the world look at what you possess and think, that would bring me lasting contentment. A car, a home made out of brick instead of straw or mud. Living in America... Does it? Are you content? Or are you looking at something someone else has and thinking, you know, that would do the trick for me? Our prayer life even reveals our lack of contentment and our abundance. And it usually shows by putting the word B-U-T at the end of a thinking. Thank you, Lord, for friends. But I wish I had more. Thank you, Lord, for my health. But could you eliminate my arthritis? Thank you, Lord, for my house. But I really need one with more bedrooms. Thank you, Lord, for my food. But I, I really wish I could afford to go out to eat more often. Thank you, Lord, for my clothes. But I really wish I could afford to dress classier. The truth is, we have so much, we don't know how to handle it with contentment. When your cup runs over, instead of thanking God, you complain about the size of the cup. Paul states in verse 12, in any and every circumstance. Now, some translators translate this, in any and every place. And some of you are convinced that contentment rests in moving. You've seen the grass and it's greener over there. You see all the good in a different location and only the bad in your current location. Uh, let me give you a caution concerning contentment. Contentment does not mean that you're never going to change jobs. Some of you are at verbally abusive jobs and, and you need to leave that environment. Others of you have been offered better money and better hours and God may have you take that opportunity. Contentment does not mean that you should never desire to excel. Work hard. Even better, work smart. Climb the corporate ladder. Just don't think that the ladder leads to contentment. Contentment does not mean that you do not seek for ways of improvement. 
learn, read, never stop growing. Contentment is not about lowering expectations. You see, this gospel contentment removes none of your drive, but all of your restlessness. Paul says, I've learned the secret. Well, you can't have secrets. In my house, we teach our kids, there are no secrets. No one ever tells you, let's keep a secret. There are no secrets. And I'm telling Paul, boldly, he's dead, so he can't do anything to me. Don't keep a secret, Paul. You better reveal it. What's the secret? He says, verse 12, I have learned the secret. Paul isn't suggesting that growing in Christ means you have to learn secret passcodes or secret handshakes and all kinds of top secret stuff in order to be content. It simply means that contentment is not obvious and it's not easy. Paul was a satisfied man. He was a contented man. How did he get there? He's not speaking of, he is speaking of contentment based on Christ. Gladness grounded in Christ. Joy resting on Christ. Contentment is found in Christ, not your circumstances. Not in the absence of pain, but in the presence of Christ. And by the way, one of the, one of the practical things we learn from this verse is that contentment makes you flexible. Able to go anywhere, anytime. If, if you're from the south and God calls you to the north, you will face many cultural challenges. The biggest will be an absence of sweet tea, which is sinful, but you will face it. If you move to another country in an impoverished place, overseas living will require you to learn another language, adopt new customs, and reorient your whole way of life. I've met people, many, many in seminary, many in churches. I've met people that say, I'll serve anywhere as long as it's in Florida. I can go anywhere. As long as it's close to my family. So do you need Jesus plus something else? Or is Jesus alone sufficient? Fourth movement. Contentment is impossible in your own strength. Now before I read verse 13, I should tell you that it is the most tweeted verse in the Bible. Sadly, it also remains one of the most incorrectly interpreted verses in the Bible. Don't look to Twitter to interpret the Bible. All right, look to your elders for that. Now, you non-Christians, who you, those of you who are non-Christians, you've never repented of your sins, never put your faith and trust in just this Jesus Christ. I, I would bet, and pastors are gamblers, I would bet that you've even heard of this verse. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The him is Christ, and that's why I like that translation better. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, that is not God's blank check, signed and waiting for you to fill in the amount of strength you want to achieve your supernatural goals. Business owners place it in their office in an attempt to make their company a Fortune 500 company. Joel Osteen. Never thought I'd quote him, did you? Joel Osteen, while driving through a million-dollar subdivision, said to his wife, We will never be able to live in places like this. 
She turned and looked at him and said, You just have to have faith. After all, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. One of my, hate, fa- one of my favorite Hebrew words for that is pronounced like this. Baloney. Baloney. That, that may work in a Disney movie. Uh, you just believe in yourself and you can do anything. And, and the problem is the church has baptized Disney into Christianity. By saying here, just believe in Jesus and you can do anything you really want. I haven't studied for my SAT, but I can do all things through Christ. <laughs> Jesus is like the personal genie in a bottle, the rabbit's foot. And we have ripped this verse out of its context while it kicked and screamed. Paul isn't saying, I can break these chains, body slam these guards, and run out of this house like 4-4 through Christ who strengthens me. No. He's not saying you can win a marathon if you're overweight. Many athletes love to quote this verse for inspiration to achieve their dreams. And often they're well-intended, but they are uninformed. I don't question their motive, just their exegesis. Some of you know how difficult it is to hit a straight drive on the golf course. It's just as difficult to interpret this verse. We tend to slice into the the prosperity gospel or hook into the entrepreneurship gospel. The first, the prosperity gospel, emphasizes the first two words, I can. And the second, the entrepreneurship gospel, emphasizes the words, do all things. And just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves... This verse is crucified between two errors. Do not reduce this verse to an entrepreneurship gospel. It was not written to help you win a game. It was written for men like the Christian in India. Who for following Jesus Christ faithfully. Faced the sentence of being skinned alive. Like a catfish. And while they took out their knives, he told them, and I quote, Take off these robes of sin. I shall soon put on robes of righteousness. And he did. Read this verse in view of persecution, not success. A proper interpretation of this verse looks like this. I can means I will. Do all things means I will endure all these things. Through Jesus Christ. Paul could endure all the things mentioned previously because of Christ. I could say it this way. Paul could be content in any situation, any circumstance, because Christ infused him. Infused strength into him. Can you suffer the loss of your job and remain content through Christ? Can you live with the loss of food or comfort and still be content? Can you endure prison and still be content? Paul did. Paul also could handle the heights of success and remain content. Can you? Can you handle having plenty? Can you handle never missing a meal and still remain content? In the language of this verse, can you handle the extremes of life? Christ infuses you with strength. Now, if you're not a Christian, that promise doesn't, that's not for you. This is for Christians. 
you're not a Christian, that's available to you at salvation. Christ infuses you with strength. Contentment comes from Christ. The world cannot touch what Christ gives you. You can be content while you're constantly discipling, you're disciplining, your disrespectful child. You can get through this unemployment. You can get through the divorce of your parents. You can endure this disease that will one day take your life. No matter what things come your way, nothing can take away your contentedness. The world cannot touch what Christ infuses into his children. The reason Paul could live in such extremes is not because of his ability. He was not a super Christian. He could endure because Christ enabled him to live in various and ever-changing circumstances. Christ infused strength within him. I can be content in whatever situation God gives me. I'm still trying to learn this truth. It will take years for us to work this truth into our heart so that it's our default setting. Do not allow yourself to accept any superficial substitutes for contentment. Do not settle for anything less than gospel contentment. Will you connect the word content in verse 11 to Christ in verse 13? That is the secret. Real contentment is found in Christ. There is a void inside of you. That only Jesus can fill. God designed your soul in such a way that no person, including your spouse or child, can fill that void. Only Jesus. Only Him. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.